This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 1. John 1 is where we'll be this morning. We've been in the middle of a sermon series called Equipped. And we've been looking at God's work of salvation throughout all of history. But today, we're actually going to take a brief pause from that series and just talk about Christmas. So we have a few more weeks left in Equipped, but because it is Christmas time, we didn't have a full Advent series, but we still wanted to have a week just to talk about the miracle of Christmas. And so that's what we're going to do this morning from John chapter 1. When you read the New Testament, you'll notice it starts with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all seem to tell roughly the same story. They all tell the story of a man named Jesus Christ who came to earth, did miraculous things, was killed, came back to life, and then went into heaven. So if you're reading just straight through the New Testament, what's going to happen is you're going to read about Jesus Christ's life in a book called Matthew, and then you'll get to Mark, and you're going to read that same story again, and you'll get to Luke, you'll read that same story again, and then you'll get to John, and you read that same story all over again. However, each time you read it, it'll be a little bit different because each of those writers had a little different flavor. They, they focused on different things. And there's portions where those books all seem very similar, and they're telling the same story But then there's portions where those stories of Jesus' life look quite different. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus' birth, which we typically call Christmas. But we're in the book of John, and John usually tells his story of Jesus' life quite differently. And John's Christmas story is no different. But that's where we will be this morning. So let me read these verses for us, starting John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you have given to us 
throughout history that has been kept in the book that we have here on our laps. I ask now as we look to the words that John wrote down almost 2,000 years ago, that your spirit would speak to our minds and our hearts, that we might give you all the praise and glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ever since I was a little kid, I have loved Christmas lights. I remember even from when I was young, the excitement that after the Thanksgiving holiday kind of wound down, it then became Christmas season. And my dad would usually go down into the basement and get a few boxes up out of the basement where they'd been sitting in storage for 11 months. And we'd crack open the boxes and then there would just be strings of Christmas lights sitting in a tub. And then you spent the morning just trying to untangle the mess that you had left for yourself 11 months ago. Then you plugged it into the wall, and then you spent the next hour trying to figure out which little bulb was burnt out that made the string not work. But eventually, what you ended up with was a whole bunch of Christmas lights sitting on your floor, plugged into the wall, all lit up, and then you were ready to go outside and put them on the house. And I remember even as a kid, before I was able to help very much, I still wanted to help with this process, to be able to get our house decorated for Christmas, to get the lights up so that when people drove by, they would see it all lit up for Christmas time. And then my family, usually what we would do most years is at some point in December, after everyone else had gotten their decorations up, is you pile in the car and you go drive to see everyone else's Christmas lights. And you always knew there were some neighborhoods that were better than others. There are some neighborhoods where people just get lazy and they'll have like one strand halfway across the garage. But then there's other neighborhoods where they seem to coordinate where every house is decked out. One of, the, one of the streets in my neighborhood backed up to a pond, and all the neighbors had a tradition of hanging icicles on their fence so that it reflected in the pond and just lit up the whole area. It's beautiful. One of the, the problems, though, is that I was in a family of five, and so that meant that, if you think about it, mom and dad were in the front row, and then the three of us were in that back row. That meant that one kid had to end up in the middle seat which I don't know if you've ever been the kid in the middle seat trying to see Christmas lights, but it's usually ducking down to look through the windshield or you're trying to like see past your sister who's in the way. But still, we, we had a good time with it. We'd always go out and, and see the Christmas lights. And it's something I've loved since I was a kid. And even as I've grown up, I, I love it all the same. And this year in particular, I've noticed people have seemed to be in the Christmas spirit. I think we've all been home more. I think we've all been wanting uh, some Christmas cheer a little bit more. And so the lights are already up for a lot of people. And you can go out on a drive and, and just take in some beautiful, beautiful scenes. And one of the things I love about it is that there's just something so striking about a Christmas light setup on a dark, cold winter night. Because the lights have all the attention. Whenever the sun has gone down, everything's quiet, there's that chill in the air, and you look out and you're just dazzled by the colors and shapes and sizes of all these different lights. Someone's hung up. When John gives us his Christmas story this morning, the exact analogy he uses is one of light and darkness. He uses this same concept of light's dazzling brilliance to talk about the Christmas story. So in the passage we just read, we're reading the story of someone's birth, but the example that John uses to talk about this birth is he says that it's like a light has shone into a darkness, and suddenly we've seen something like we have never seen before. 
This birth here, this story of arrival, is something new and different from God. That for all the works that God had done before this point, this work here, this arrival of the Word, was something new and unique from God. Because this was arrival of a Savior who was long promised, but then is finally delivered in Bethlehem. So when we read it, we have to ask ourselves, what's different about this arrival? Because God has been sending people into the world for thousands of years at this point. Just read through your Old Testament, and you'll see all the men and women that God sent into the world and sent to his people to bring about his plan. You'll read about men like Moses and Elijah. You'll read about women like Deborah and Esther. Or, or David, the king, or you'll read about the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, men and women that God has sent so that his word might be spoken to his people and his work of salvation might be done in the world. But then we get down to this arrival, and John says, this is a flash of light unlike anything you have seen before. This arrival is different from every other person God has sent. And the difference between all those who came before and the Savior that arrives in John chapter 1 can be summed up in one word, incarnation. Incarnation is just a word that means in the flesh. For something to be incarnate means that it has arrived in flesh, in person, it's physically present. And what's important about the Savior is not just that he's incarnate, but what is incarnate, who is incarnate. What we see here from John chapter 1 is that this incarnate Savior is the Word. It's the Word from verse 1 that we read about. The Word that was in the beginning. The Word that was with God. The Word who himself is God. And that's the difference of this arrival from all the others. God is sent not just a Savior, but God himself has arrived into the world. God isn't just sending another prophet or another teacher or another king. God himself is coming into his creation as a savior incarnate in the flesh. So this doctrine or teaching of incarnation is central to John's Christmas story. God who has existed from eternity past, who has all power and authority over all of creation because he created it all, now comes into that creation as a human. If we don't understand the doctrine of incarnation, then it means that we don't understand rightly who Jesus was when he was on earth. And if we don't understand who Jesus was, then we don't understand the work that he did. And so it's central to our Christian faith to be able to understand what it means that we worship an incarnate Savior. If you look at the statement of faith for this church, which we share with our denomination, it says this in article number four. You can look it up later. It's just the evangelical free church statement of faith. But it says this about Jesus. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And it helpfully defines that for us. What does it mean for Christ to be God incarnate? It means that when he came into this earth, he was fully God and fully man. 
that though there was one person, the person of Jesus Christ, he had two natures, his nature of divinity and his nature of humanity. And there is some element of mystery here because we're not saying that Jesus was sort of half God, half man. We're not saying that Jesus looked like man but really was just God. We're not saying that Jesus was just a man who resembled God or acted like God. When we claim the doctrine of the incarnation as taught in the scriptures, we are claiming a savior who was both fully God and fully man. And it is hard for us to wrap our heads around that. But one of the things we see all throughout the Bible is that God oftentimes will go beyond our understanding because he's infinite and we're finite. And so we can look to the scriptures and see an incarnate savior who is fully God and fully man and admit, I I don't fully understand how that can be. But I know that's who Christ was. That's who the scriptures reveal him to be. That's who he revealed himself to be. So that's that's the celebration of Christmas. That's the miracle of Christmas when we celebrate it every year. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word who was with God and who was God, who now comes, takes on flesh, and lives among us. And again, it's important that he doesn't just look human, he doesn't just act human, he is human when he arrives in Bethlehem on that first Christmas. That's what John tells us here in his story. In the inky black of a sinful world, Jesus Christ is an unconquerable beacon of light because he has existed from eternity past. He is God who has created all things. He's now present in that creation, flesh and blood. He's human. What I want to do with just the remainder of our time then is look at this miracle of the incarnation and just look at four reasons we should celebrate the incarnation this Christmas season. Four reasons to celebrate the incarnation. If we had all the time in the world, I don't know if we could exhaust the reasons that we celebrate Christ incarnate, but we do have a limit here, so I'll just cap it at four. And so these aren't the only four reasons. These aren't even maybe the main four reasons, but these are just four reasons that we can celebrate the incarnation this Christmas. So the first reason that we celebrate Jesus Christ incarnate is that Christ becomes our substitute. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ becomes our substitute. Now I want to read what Paul, an apostle, wrote in Romans. He writes this in Romans chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll turn there for us. But he says this in Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. One of the things that Paul does as he looks back at the work of Christ is he looks even farther back at a man who came before Christ. Specifically, he looks all the way back to Adam, the first man. Remember, Adam and Eve were the first two humans ever created on this earth that were placed in the Garden of Eden by God at the beginning of the world. 
And Adam and Eve were placed in a garden where they had everything they could ever want or need, and they had fellowship with God to walk with him in the garden. And God's only restriction was to not eat of a particular tree. But Adam and Eve decided to eat from that tree. And by disobeying God, they plunged themselves into sin. But as Paul looks at that act of Adam, he recognizes that Adam didn't just plunge himself into sin. He also dragged all of his children down with him. So that means that Adam then was a sinner, and all the children that he would have would be sinners, and all their children would be sinners, and their children would be sinners, right on down to you and I in this room, sinners, because Adam stood in our place to represent us as humanity and sinned. Now, we can't put all the blame on Adam because as each of us has come along, we have voluntarily chosen to also sin. But our first father, Adam, stood as our representative and sinned, and he dragged everyone down with him. And so when you, when you read this, it can sound somewhat hopeless, that it seems like my present circumstance is partially because some person thousands and thousands of years ago ate from the wrong tree. But the good news in all of this is that just as Adam stood as a representative for us, it means that now Christ could come into the world and once again stand as a representative for all of humanity. By the same token that Adam gets to stand in a garden and through one sin drag down all of humanity, then Christ can hang on a cross and by an act of righteousness drag up all those who would believe into eternal life. Farther on down in Romans chapter 5, Paul lays this out in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The first reason we celebrate the incarnation of Christ is because Christ becomes our substitute. And he was able to do that because he was fully man. He was human, and as human could stand in the place for other humans, for his brothers and sisters. So Jesus isn't just an example for us. He's our substitute. And I want to be clear, Jesus is still an example for us, but Jesus is an example for us in ways that we're able to imitate him. So when we look to Jesus, we can see him as an example on how we might pray. We can look to Jesus as an example of how we can try to seek the Father's will. We can look to him as an example of how we treat the sick and the downtrodden. However, there are some ways in which we cannot imitate Christ. Namely, we cannot imitate the way he lived a blameless life from his birth all the way through to his death. Even if you were somehow able to stop sinning in this moment and spend the rest of your life doing nothing but good works, it would not be enough to erase the debt you've already accrued. Christ lived blamelessly every moment of his life on earth. And we cannot copy that example. We can't imitate him there. But the good news is that it's in that place that he then becomes our substitute where we are unable to copy Christ's example. He becomes our substitute. What happens is that he goes to the cross, 
He stands as our substitute. And, and he takes on the full balance of our guilt, of all the sin that we have committed, of all the ways that we have wronged God and others. He takes all of that guilt upon himself, bears the wrath of it, and then he gives you righteousness that was his to begin with. Because he stood in our place. He represented us when God was pouring out his wrath. And because he was a human, just like Adam was a human, just like we're human, he's able to stand in our place. And here's the problem when we fail to see Christ as our substitute. Is that we start viewing him as just merely a standard to try to achieve. He just becomes an example for us. If Christ stops becoming our substitute, then it just becomes the bar that we have to try to jump over. That I just have to live as good as he did. I, try, I have to be a good enough person. I have to just dig down and try hard enough to please God. I have to muster all my strength to try and do the right thing every moment of every day because that's how I'll gain God's favor. Because we forget that with all of our energy, we could never rightfully gain God's favor. But he's offered it freely through the work of Jesus. And so to celebrate Christ as our substitute, we can regularly come and confess our sins. We can repent and say, God, I've lived in rebellion to you. I have transgressed against your righteousness but I have a substitute who has taken the wrath for that transgression and in exchange given me his righteousness. Second reason we can celebrate the incarnation this Christmas season is that Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses. That in the incarnation, Christ has now sympathized with our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When Christ came to earth, took on human flesh, and as such, he was subject to all the weaknesses and frailty that comes with being human. But even though he was God, he was fully God, he was still also fully man, having flesh and blood. So that means that Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. He faced ridicule, rejection. Jesus had family drama. I don't know if around the holidays that feels more relatable, but Jesus had family drama. Jesus had friends and family die. He cried. He felt physical pain, emotional turmoil, spiritual distress. The pain and sorrow of this world were not just things that he knew as God with all knowledge. They were things that he experienced. 
And yet we see that even in the midst of these trials, even when he was tempted, he walked blamelessly. But now what happens is that he turns to us as we walk through trials, as we're tempted. And he doesn't look down on us and feel disappointment because we weren't able to stand up to the trials in the same way that he was. Instead, he looks at us with sympathy. He looks at us with compassion because he knows firsthand what it's like to feel pain, what it's like to look at a loved one who's died. He knows what it's like to feel loss. So when you're tempted, when you face sorrow, when you have turmoil in your life, Hebrews says you can now boldly approach God's throne and admit your insufficiency. You can admit that I don't, I don't think I have the strength to stand up to this trial. Or you can admit I am beset by temptation in this area. You can approach God's throne time and time again, and you will not be faced with a heavenly father who is disappointed in you. Instead, at his throne, you will find a savior who is compassionate towards you and gives you mercy and grace upon grace. Because God himself has come as human, has faced the pain of this world and has experienced it for himself. Because of the incarnation, we don't have a God who is far off and who doesn't understand our weaknesses. We don't have a God who ignores all the temptations in this world and in our life. Instead, we can be confident we have a God who has descended down into our neighborhood. He knows our pains and our sorrows because he suffered through them himself. But he always offers grace and mercy. Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses. Third reason to celebrate the incarnation this Christmas season is that Christ conquered death. Being fully man, sharing in the weakness that we experience in our humanity meant that Jesus Christ was able to die. Again, it's the miracle of the incarnation that someone who is God is also still man because he's human just like any other human, he can die. And we see it's not just that Jesus was able to die, but in fact that he did. After being delivered to the government to be executed, he was hung on a cross, he suffered and died. Because of the incarnation, Jesus had flesh and blood. And on that cross, that blood was shed. And the heart that was used to pump it through his veins stopped beating. And the lungs that drew in oxygen stopped breathing. And Jesus Christ died. What we see is that that death wasn't a hindrance to God's plan of salvation. That when Jesus Christ hung on a cross and died, it wasn't a hurdle for God to overcome because his Savior was dead. In fact, it was the precise reason that the word that Jesus Christ was sent into the world. It was for that very purpose that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so that the Word might go to the cross and die. Hebrews, again, now in chapter 2, says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's, That's another way of saying that Jesus was fully man. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the Christmas story, we see that the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation was to send a Savior so that he might die. So that then through that death, he might conquer death itself. In the incarnation, we have a Savior who's able to die, taking on humanity like us in every respect. But because of his righteousness and his blamelessness, death had no claim on him. And therefore, death had no lasting power over him. The evidence of his power and authority over death itself was his resurrection just three days later. Even though Christ died on Friday by Sunday morning, he once again was alive. When Adam and Eve first sinned, when they were in the garden eating from the tree, God had already warned them that if you eat from that tree, the consequence is death. And he told them that you will die in the day that you eat of that tree. And we can see that in the moment that Adam and Eve first sinned against God, they suffered a spiritual death and separation because they immediately became ashamed of themselves and sought to hide themselves from God. Where before they were able to walk with him and have fellowship with him, after their sin, they ran and they hid. And then eventually we know that Adam and Eve also suffered physical death. As a result of their rebellion, once sin was into humanity and the world, it meant that humans now would suffer at the hands of death because we had departed from God's perfect creation. Even down to this day, apart from Christ, physical death and eternal separation from God the only possibility for a human. Apart from Christ, physical death and eternal separation is the only path that someone has. Christian, celebrate Christ conquering death this Christmas season because his death and resurrection have now secured your own victory over physical death and have given you spiritual life. Because of Christ conquering death, Physical death now becomes, for the Christian, just a temporary state. And separation from God is replaced with an eternal union with Christ where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because the Savior came and gave up his own life, he conquered the power of death and has removed its power over all who would believe in his name. So celebrate that this Christmas season. Share that hope. That's the hope of Christmas, not just that a Savior's arrived, but that that Savior conquered death itself. 
And if Christ has conquered death, it means that there is nothing else that can hold power over us. That in Christ we are God's children. And he holds us close to himself. Share that hope with others. We often talk about Jesus being the reason for Christmas, the reason for the season. But it's not just Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus came into this world to give his own life for you and for me. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's the arrival of a Savior. And the fourth reason to celebrate the incarnation is that Christ is exalted because of the incarnation. Philippians chapter 2, this is again the Apostle Paul writing. Verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All that that I just read, that's a review of what we've already seen. Christ is God. He came to earth as human, and he died on a cross. That's what we've just looked at. That's what Paul's just laid out in Philippians 2. But look at where he goes next, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ came to earth, when he condescended to earth, as Philippians says, he took on flesh. He lived among us. But at, at no point, even in his death, did Christ become less than God. At all times he was fully man, but also fully God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word still today is God. And after going to the cross, after conquering death, he now has all power and authority. Death is swallowed up. Christ is exalted on high so that all of creation might bow down and worship him because he's been given a name that is above all other names. He is more worthy of praise and adoration than anyone or anything else that you've ever seen or encountered in your life. And the incarnation is the miracle that we see that exalted Christ in human flesh on earth. That when we read the Christmas story and when we read the gospel accounts and we see his life and the things he did and the things that he taught, we're seeing Christ himself, who is exalted above all. It's a, a mystery of the incarnation that God became something we could understand and comprehend. In Bethlehem, in a barn, Mary and Joseph were able to look at a baby boy in a manger and see God more fully and understandably than even Moses had seen on top of Mount Sinai. Moses, who went up and spoke with God, who heard God's voice. Moses, who saw all the miracles that God had done to bring his people out of Egypt, who witnessed pillars of fire and of smoke leading God's people. Moses, who once was able to just glimpse 
The, the slightest sliver of God's back and his face shone with glory because of it. That Moses wasn't able to even see God as fully or comprehensibly as Mary and Joseph looking at their baby boy. Because Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews says in these last times, is how God has revealed himself to his creation. He's human like us. So we can understand him. We can comprehend him. We can see his actions and his words. But all the while, we are seeing the God of creation himself on earth. So we can celebrate that Christ is the exalted God who is above all things. The light, which had been hinted at through all of history, even when Adam and Eve were in the garden, when they had sinned and, and God came and they had to deal with their trespass, even then God promised, I will send a Savior to fix this situation. That's all he said. I'll, I'll send a Savior. And then later God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a nation. But from one of your descendants, I'm actually going to have someone who blesses the whole world. We saw a little bit more of who God's Savior might be. And all throughout history, we've been seeing more and more glimpses of this Savior. We've been given hints of what this light might look like. And at Christmas time in the incarnation, that light has now shone brightly with full force to reveal God Himself, Jesus Christ in flesh. So when we look to Christ, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we celebrate that this Christmas. This week, like I said, we will be observing communion, which is very appropriately timed as we're looking at the incarnation. So if you have a communion packet, go ahead and grab that now. Communion is a celebration of Christ's work on the cross. It's also an acknowledgement of his incarnation. When Jesus was with his disciples the night before his death, they were celebrating the Jewish Passover meal. And Passover was a, a celebration from Israel that remembered when they had been slaves in Egypt and God had delivered them from Pharaoh. Because of how mightily God had worked, they celebrated this meal every year as a reminder of God's goodness. So the night before Jesus would go to the cross and die, he reclines with his disciples at a table to celebrate the Passover. And he says, I, I want to celebrate this with you because I'm not going to eat and drink of this meal until all of God's people are together. So he lifted up a piece of bread he said, this is my body broken for you. Christian, take and eat the body of Christ broken for you. After taking the bread, then took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Christian, take and drink the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sins.
When we see the incarnation, we realize that communion is a celebration that we have a Savior who's powerful enough to conquer death, but close enough to us that he is human like we are. His physical body was broken. His blood was shed. His blood was human just like ours is, but because of the miracle of the incarnation, his blood also was the blood of God shed so that many daughters and sons might be brought to glory. Let's celebrate that miracle this Christmas. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would keep on our minds the wonder and mystery that you sent a Savior. You yourself came to this earth as human so we could see you, understand you, comprehend you, but also so that you might give your life so that we could be forgiven. I ask that we would celebrate that truth this season and share the hope that we have because of Christ conquering death. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.